Uh, it's great to be back, amen? Uh, <clears throat> and welcome if you're new, if you've been here a time or two, we just uh, appreciate you being here this morning, and like Daniel just prayed, we don't think that's by accident. Um, and uh, it's, like I said, it's great to be back. It's, it's really good to be past, and, and I'm, I'm talking, I know I sound a little bit off, uh, for me a lot of this has just been a head cold. And, um, and a working staycation uh, for the last two weeks. I've been pretty much just behind a tractor seat. That's kind of my um, cold remedy is to uh, just keep driving. Like the one thing you won't stop, you won't stop the clock and you won't stop the calendar. And so what we do for work work as far as uh, farming goes, uh, that had to continue despite how we feel. And, uh, but I would just want to say this to start with, I just appreciate everybody's prayers. Like, and I know that I'm not the only one, so I'm going to kind of speak on half of everybody that's kind of been under this, you know, <clears throat> under the weather, man, we appreciate your prayers and your support for sure. Like, and, and today's message is not going to be necessarily about that, but it, but it could be in a sense that, um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about fears. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about troubles and difficult times a little bit. And, uh, and so for us, this last couple of weeks have been pretty tough, and there's been times where, like, you know, the, the, um, the constant go-to is to go to the Lord in prayer. The constant go-to. And, and what is God saying? Like, how is God applying then wisdom into each situation? And how is he applying that into, uh, into uh, Tammy and I's situation where we haven't felt good, and now we're on the mend? But um, anyway, that being said... Um, it just seems like sometimes trouble just seems to find us, right? Anybody feel that way? Like, am I the only one in this room? I know I'm not the only one in this room. Doesn't it seem like trouble just seems to find you, seems to find me, seems to find us? Now, I will say there's some in the room that trouble uh, is in their back pocket, right? Like, it's just always really, really close, and so it's never real far away. And, um, <clears throat> but sometimes trouble just seems to kind of find us where us at. And the question on the table, really, as we start this morning, is that when trouble comes, uh, what voice are we going to be listening to? When things are really difficult in your life, what voice are you going to listen to? When trouble and difficult times, trials and tribulations, the Bible calls them, uh, they are inevitable what advice are we taking, or what advice are we refusing to take? Is it backside to that same question? What advices are out there when, you, when you're pressed to the max, when, when things are a really difficult situation, what advice is it out there for you and for me and for all of us as Christ followers is that we should be embracing? And what advices are out there that you know what? It doesn't line up with the Word of God. It doesn't line up with the character of God. It doesn't line up with what God's doing in your life. But man, does it sound good. Man, does it sound good. I just got to think about it a little bit. I got to ponder on it. What advice is it that's acceptable? And what advice do you take, do I take, frankly, that needs a good stiff arm? It needs to be rejected. It's not biblical wisdom. The heart of that type of advice really is demonic wisdom. 
It's anti-God, antithetical to God. It needs to be rejected. And so today as we dive into this passage, uh, it's going to start right off with a strong declaration and then a question about advice. And then we'll dive in and see how King David kind of works that all out through the course of this psalm. Psalm 11 is where we're going to be this morning. It's a great read on David's response really to bad advice and how awesome God is. David, of course, the son of Jesse, was the one chosen to uh, replace King Saul. King Saul was the king. If you remember back in kind of your uh, history in the Old Testament, uh, God had declared that he was king of Israel, and they needed to just follow him and trust him as king. And, and there was uh, leaders that were a part of that, national leaders, warriors like Moses and, and Joshua and so on and so forth. You get in further down the story, there's the judges. It's a great... It, the book of Judges is one of the, the most awesome reads. It, it reads like a Tom Clancy novel in the sense that it, you know, there's these battles, there's this up, there's this down. Uh, all of these crazy things happen in the book of Judges. But in that time, there was... God had appointed a judge, if you will. Now, <clears throat> when I say a, God had appointed a judge, your mind immediately goes to an older black guy, kind of balding a little bit, uh, that looks super smart and super wealthy, and is wearing a black robe sitting up in front of a courthouse room. That's what your mind goes to when I say judge, but that wasn't what it was in the book of Judges. They were just simply rulers. They were the people that... The, the, the man uh, and woman that God had chose uh, to lead Israel and to preside, that's where we kind of get the idea of judge, they presided over the affairs of the nation in that way. And so if there was conflict or whatever, uh, that would be the person that, um, that people would take their grievances to, and, and they would make a judgment uh, according to God's word in the matter. At kind of the conclusion of that, the people of that era, the people in Israel started to look around, and uh, <clears throat> boy, does um, times never change. The people of Israel started to look around at the other nations and say, man alive, <clears throat> they all have kings. They all have like a physical king. Man, wouldn't that just be a really a good system? Like, wouldn't that be a great way to, to lead the nation? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be better for us as a nation if we had a physical king? Wouldn't that be a good thing? Isn't that, isn't that a good form of government? Have times changed? Aren't there people on the earth today that kind of stare around? Aren't there people in our country even that stare around and say, Wow, we should try this over here because <clears throat> uh, that might be a better way to lead America than you know, being a constitutional republic. Or we should try this over here because maybe that would be a better way, you know, to lead uh, uh, and, and, a, and a better way to govern in this country. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And God really has a stinging rebuke for Israel about their desire to really reject him as king and uh, kind of replace him with a physical king. King Saul was the first king chosen over Israel. Uh, started out good, ended bad. 
quick synopsis. Um, he started out, he looked the part, he acted the part. He started off in it with good humility and good character and uh, really did, in the long run, didn't have the wisdom to lead the nation. And so he fell into sin, he disobeyed God. Um, God pretty much said, you're going to be done. But there was this long period of time between when Saul was actually done and when God pronounced him to be done. And in that time period, in that, that interim, David, the shepherd boy, this farm kid, son of Jesse, who was out doing his thing, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't in the tent playing Xbox, you know, he, he wasn't playing Fortnite, you know, he wasn't just hanging out eating Cheetos, wondering how much of life was going to just come his way because he deserved it. No, he was out getting dirty, getting messy, working with the sheep. He was out learning to defend the sheep. Teenage boy, ready to take on big tasks, had taken on big tasks in the protection of the sheep, all kinds of predators. Uh, <clears throat> and he wasn't sitting up on a ridge somewhere with a 6'5 Creedmoor dealing with the wolves, right? It was hand to hand combat. It was down and dirty, like either the wolf's going to live or David's going to live. And David lived. He was a warrior. He was a warrior at a young age. This is a guy that wrote Psalm 11. He's known as the shepherd king. He's known really as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. That tells me right there, in that description of a man, that there was a lifelong pursuit that he had to follow God. Nothing was going to get in his way. Kind of like protecting the sheep from predators. Nothing was going to get in the way. Nothing was going to bring harm. He was a pursuer, and he pursued God, and he pursued God, and he pursued God, and it wasn't just about the rules and the regulations and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. That's not how David lived. David was after the heart of God, he wanted God's heart in the matter, not just the rules and regulations. And I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm not saying that they were bad in, even in David's eyes. I don't think that that's true. But there's more than just crossing T's and dotting I's in life. And King David was after God's heart. He wanted God's heart in every single matter, even and especially we see that in his failures. When David is confronted with his failures... His heart melts in repentance. He doesn't rebel. He doesn't shy away. He didn't make excuses. His heart is melted towards God. That's a big part of being a man after God's own heart. And of course, what leads us to Psalm 11 is he's also known as the musician king. And he writes this song for the chief musician. We have no idea who this guy is. Could be choir director, could be kind of the, the main <clears throat> musical guy in the nation of Israel at the time. But Psalm 11 starts out. Turn there in your Bibles if you would. Psalm 11, verse 1. David starts out with this great proclamation. A word that should be on all of our hearts, a word that should be on all of our minds and all of our lips. And he says this, In the Lord I put my trust. In the Lord 
I put my trust. You talk about troubled times, and David's kind of been in a lot of troubled times. He was on the run for a long time from a, from a, a failed King Saul who knew that God had chosen him, and if King Saul could just wipe him out ahead of time, he could somehow keep that, keep that royalty in Saul's family. Oddly enough, the guy that would inherit that was Jonathan, David's best friend. But David's posture is, and his proclamation at the beginning is, in the Lord, I put my trust. I mentioned briefly, three or four weeks ago, that our neighbor, Ed, had passed away. The man that was an elder and deacon and a servant in this church. It's for 30-some years, since the beginning, really. And I don't know if I shared this, but I want to share it now. This man loved the Lord, and he, trust, he did this. He put his trust in the Lord his whole life. Since he was become a believer, never looked back, never looked sideways. He trusted in the Lord. And his last communication puts the exclamation point on his life. Because Ed's last communication to Claudia, his wife, and his kids, was he wrote on a piece of paper, he couldn't talk to him. He's in ICU. They can't go in. He's right at the end of his days. He's right at that brink. We would say troubled times. We would say this is the worst. He's not going to make it. And he's right there about to take that transition. We say pass away. I wish we would not say that. I might start disciplining my own tongue to not say that. He's not passing away. Ed didn't pass away. He transitioned. He graduated into the presence of God. And he's having the best day today and better day today than he had yesterday and better day before that all up until his moment of transition. He just transitioned. He just took a step into eternity. And his last words on a piece of paper to his wife is exactly what Psalm 1 says. And Ed said, I have no fear. Isn't that awesome? That's the right perspective. That's the right way to live as a Christ follower. Like, I have no fear. He, he's, he's facing his last day in, the, in, in, a, in a failing tent, as Paul calls our bodies a tent, a temporary structure for our spirit and our soul. He's facing that last day, and he's about ready to step into the best day his last encouragement for his wife and his kids is, I have no fear. I have no fear. He trusted in the Lord. David starts off with this awesome proclamation because behind that proclamation is this question. He says, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In times of difficulty, we put our trust in the Lord so that we can face up to these types of questions just like David did. How can you say to my soul? He's, he's talking about a, a, a word of advice for some friends. He's talking about, <clears throat> frankly, bad advice. How can you say? Somebody comes up and says, hey, hey, it's, it's time to get out of here. We got to go. We got to get to this. It's like Red Dawn 2021. We got to go to the mountains, you know. All the kids are shaking their heads. They have no idea what movie Red Dawn is. And I'm like, parents, I'm going to give that one a thumbs up. The original's good. 
<laughs> better. Yeah, it's better. David's facing this advice. He's thinking about this advice that he's given. And the years prior to David becoming king of Israel, he had lived a life on the run, as I mentioned a bit ago. King Saul's hatred for David was fueled by, A, his and David's own anointing. If you want some reference, look in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David was anointed by Samuel the, <clears throat> the prophet to be the next king of Israel in that chapter. Two chapters later in 1 Samuel 18, uh, David does this. He marries Saul's daughter. So he marries his daughter, not the one, not the first one, number two. Uh, sadly, that ended in tragedy, but that's another story. The third thing that fueled Saul's hatred for David was what I had referred to as David's close friend and really his loyal companion was Saul's own son, Jonathan. Uh, it's a wonderful story of brotherhood. It's a wonderful story of, of two young fellows who saw what God was doing, <clears throat> could have chose differently, I suppose, Jonathan could have just stayed in the background, stayed out of the way, you know, and just in hopes that maybe his dad would deal with this, this David guy, you know. Jonathan knew that David was the anointed one. Jonathan knew that his dad was an heir. And Jonathan knew that he would not be the next king of Israel. And that did not faze him in his friendship and support and loyalty to his best friend, David, at all. Didn't phase it. He did what was right, regardless of the circumstances. That's kind of a whole sermon on another time. But beyond him, David had these friends that all had the same similar experience, this band that was with him, on the run, in the hills, hiding out, and no doubt they had good intention. They had good intention to try to give David good advice, but sometimes in the Bible, and sometimes in the Bible, we are called to flee. There is a time when we're called to flee, to flee to the mountain, as it were. That is not in the face of trials and tribulations, though. Do you know when we're called to flee? When the Bible says, get out of here, it's in the presence of sin. It's when we know we're in a position where we're going to be tempted and we're going to probably trip and fall and down the stairs of life we go. That's when we flee. That's when, that's when this advice to flee to the mountains that David was getting would have been good advice, but not in the midst of trials and tribulations. Not in the midst of pushback when you're standing and putting your faith and trust in the Lord. That's not the time to leave. That's the time to stand and fight. That's the time to put your faith in, in God, knowing that He has everything under control. It's not the time to be fearful. Fleeing can be a form of fearfulness. I'll say that again. Fleeing can be a form of fearfulness. It can also be an opportunity to get away from sin. And let me make this statement right up front. Uh, <clears throat> every move we make and change in life is not necessarily like a fleeing moment from one to the next. Okay? There are times when God says, time to go. Time to go. I can give you plenty of biblical references for those times. 
There are times where God moves us around and does things in our lives. But you know, and I'll tell you, I know, there's times when I'm tempted to flee because it's tempted to get out of town because it's full, driven by fear. We have to be able to be mature enough in our faith to discern whether the movement is motivated by fear or whether the movement is that we're about to embrace is motivated by the Lord. Now, a couple things under this idea of fleeing is a form of fearfulness. Uh, fear-driven advice makes the enemy seem really big. Here's some of the ways you're going to know whether this is, whether what you're processing, what you're going through, whether it's, <clears throat> you know, whether it's from the Lord, whether good advice is from the Lord or not from the Lord, whether the situation is, is one to uh, step away or not step away. Here's one of the things that tells you that it's fearful, and that is this. Fear-driven advice makes the enemy seem huge. I think if there's anything that we've all experienced as the, not just a nation, but really in a global sense, in the last couple years, or in the last year, whatever it's been, what's it been, a year, better than a year, year and a half, is it seems that fear-driven advice makes everything massive. It's huge. Everybody's going to die. We'll tell you what, everybody is going to die. Let's be honest about that. There will be an appointed time for me when this ticker is going to melt down, and that's it. And the same is true for everybody. But I'm sick and tired of this massively huge thing that's, that's fear-driven, fear-driven, fear. I'll tell you what, you know why they put the death numbers on the side of the TV in the, on the news channels? Because they're propagating fear. They want you to know, well, these people died, well, and all these people, and all these people died. You know when that started? During the Vietnam War. Vietnam War was the first war in history where it wasn't about the, the geographic uh, conquest and, and winning areas. It all became about how many people died on our side and how many people died on their side. It was all about the head count. And I believe that it's shameful, shameful to drive this thing for the last year and a half with that type of fear-based mentality. I'm not up here to preach about social issues. I'm here to preach about the Word because it's the Word of God that corrects us when we're in error and living by fear and living under this idea that this fear makes enemy look so massive. What am I talking about? Look at verse 2. The same advice David's talking about says, For look, the wicked bend their bow, and they make ready the arrows on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright of heart. Oh no, we're, we're going to come under attack. We're going to be shot down. They're getting ready. They're coming after us. We don't know where it's coming from. We can't tell who's who. Fear grows with this idea of anticipated attack. It grows when the enemy seems big and is propagated in this massive way. Fear grows with the anticipation of the attack. Look at this idea of the wicked. They're, they're setting themselves up. They're setting themselves up. They're bending their bows. You know what it means? When you bend your bow, like in those days, like we would say, we would say that we've got the cleaning kit out and we're cleaning the rifle. We're getting it ready so it shoots straight, so it's reliable. But back in those days, it was all, 
bows and arrows and spears and if it came down to it, rocks, right? So these warriors would bend their bows, they would get them ready, get them flexible. I'll tell you like, and I'm not like a, I'm not a huge archer, kind of wish Matt was here. There's nothing worse than pulling back a bow and the bow breaking. Like, that really stinks. Because kind of pieces go everywhere. So they would prepare their bows for battle by flexing them, getting them ready to go, so they just, so just work perfect every time. Right? They would make ready their arrows on the string. Everything was perfect, ready for battle. And this advice is bringing this along in a way that is driving this whole thing for David. This advice coming to David is, 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 is growing through fearfulness. Fear grows with the anticipation of the attack. Here's another way fear grows. Fear grows really at an uncontrollable rate when it's coupled with the unknown. You know that that's true. I know that that's true. We've lived this for the last year and a half. It's the unknown. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know where the attack's going to come from. We don't know what, what, how the attack's going to come. We, 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 just, we just don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And it's all propagated by fear. Look there real quick. Last line in verse 2. That they may shoot secretly at the upright of heart. Fear gets propagated through this idea of some covert attack, you know, some Navy SEAL style, you know, Special Forces style. You never hear where the bullets are coming from, you know, and it's, and it's propagated to promote fear. And it's real. There is an aspect that I will say that um, some of these secret type stuff does create fear. We actually had an opportunity yesterday, Robbie and a couple buddies, and, and uh, <clears throat> oh, there was two Jeeps of us, we'll put it that way, and we decided we have, a, we have an infest of rock trucks at our place, marmots. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, they're cute and cuddly at a distance, but if you're a hay grower, they take a side of your alfalfa field and they mow it down like it's been hit with a weed eater, and uh, that costs me money. I really don't like losing money if I don't have to. So bullets are cheap, and shooting's fun. And uh, so we went after these dudes yesterday for a couple hours, and, uh, <clears throat> and we're banging away at them, not just like from you know, here to the back wall. We're shooting at like 250 yards, um, so at least they had a, a bit of a chance. But <clears throat> back to the secret thing. So one of um, Robbie's buddies had a, had a rifle with a... Um, a significant suppressor on it. And uh, what's interesting is I'm shooting with my rifle and all of a sudden I hear this click and off in the distance I hear pew, click, pew. The secret attack that you can't hear coming like from a gun that's suppressed, like you see in all the movies, you know, you see all the special forces, all you hear is like, the, you know, just the click of the action, and then bullets are flying, all that. Uh, <clears throat> that's fearful, in a real sense. And this bad advice that David was getting is kind of like that. Well, you don't know. Well, what, what, how, where are you going to go? 
How are you going to know where the enemy's shooting from? They're going to shoot in a secret way. They're going to shoot suppressed arrows. You never hear them coming. <laughs> shooting those arrows through a piece of three-inch culvert or three-inch PVC. You know, never hear them coming. It's used to promote fear. And David is hitting this head on. That's why he puts at the top. He puts out in front of all of this foolish, fearful advice. Hey, 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 hey. I'm putting my trust in the Lord. Like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Right? Fear grows at this uncontrollable rate when it's coupled with the unknown. It's those words, it's those words that we don't think about it's those little tiny words in a sentence, little tiny words that come across in the, the news media, those little words like, what if? It's the, what it is, it's the insinuation. It's the insinuation that's passed around like free Skittles at a carnival that we just don't know. You just don't really know. That's what propagates fear. It's all the what if questions. And David's kind of like saying, well, what if? You know, we'll get into that in the next few verses. The last way that fear is propagated is fear makes the enemy look big on the front end of this piece. Fear also makes the Lord seem really small. Fear makes the Lord seem really small. Why, where, where do I get that? Look at verse 3. This kind of crazy question that kind of is an insinuation that God is so small. If the foundations are destroyed, well, well, what can the righteous do? It's an insinuation that God's not big enough to handle this problem. It's an insinuation that, 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 that God's not really interested in your, your trial, your tribulation, your difficult hour. If these foundations are destroyed, if we come under this terrible attack, well, what's going to happen? How will we ever survive, Jonathan? I just don't know. Let's order two pallets of sea rats and hide out in a cave. Let's flee to the mountains and get away. I know people that have taken that route. I know because ten years later, we were cracking open these sea rats they weren't that good. They probably weren't that good when they were new. But we were going to eat them. If you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it's like um, meals ready to eat. You know, like, like what the military gives their people. All right. Enough for the promotion. What's King David's response to all this fearful advice? What would he say to your situation and to mine how would he take a stance when it comes to standing in the face of fear? He goes back to the basics, the basic doctrines of the Bible, the basic understanding of who God is, the basic stance and, and understanding and belief. And like I've said many times, when people are pressed to their, to their limits, when people are at the end of the rope, when people are in their worst possible scenario, they're going to go, you're going to go, and I'm going to go 
back to a position that is my, my foundational belief about the matter. And if that doesn't incorporate God, we're toast. I've seen it so many times in so many different ways. Paul, excuse me, but King David makes this proclamation, verse 4. He just says this to all this foolish, fearful folly. This sermon brought to you by the letter F. He says, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. Let's go back through those for just a second. The Lord is in His holy temple. At that time, it, the, the temple of God was a, was a tent. The tabernacle hadn't been built yet, but the, the, uh, it was more of a portable dwelling. And the permanent temple was built by King David's son Solomon. Regardless of how we look at the holy temple, uh, both were images and likenesses of the ultimate temple. Or as he says here, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Right? What, what the, the word that Israel got about building a temple was, was uh, an image. It was, it was based upon God's throne in heaven. So, so King David is really inserting that. He's saying, the Lord is in heaven. Like, He's here, and He's there. Beyond that, here's what He wants to say. He's still on His throne. When we were growing up and we were kids and some big catastrophic thing happened and man, we thought the world was going to end. I remember I standing in the driveway as a little kid waiting to go to school and <laughs> walked outside and I said, uh, Mom, it's snowing. It wasn't snow. Those of you who are old enough to remember Mount St. Helens explosion, um, it snowed that day. It snowed ash down on us. You know? But whenever anything big would happen... And we thought it was our world was melting down. And my mom, bless her heart, in her best sarcastic voice, would say, well, God's still on his throne, right from Psalm 11. And although it's funny, and although sometimes as little kids we don't quite understand what mom's always talking about, which was my case most of the time, um, the reality is, is David brings us back to these fundamental points. God's still on his throne? Like, do you think he doesn't know about your enemies? Do you think that he doesn't know what they're planning, what their schemes are? Of course he does. Of course he does. His eyes behold, David says. His eyes behold. It's a reminder here that not only is God still on the throne... But that, the world, <clears throat> but that the world says that Jesus is seated, seated with him. And he's not just, he's, he's, he's beholding, he's watching. Actually, if you dive in a little deeper, ah, before I even get there, I want to share this quote with you. Not only is God on his throne, we know Jesus is sitting there advocating for us. Spurgeon says this, he says, What plots can men devise which Jesus will not discover? Satan has doubtless desires to have us, that he may sift us as wheat, like he did Peter. But Jesus is in the temple praying for us, and how can our faith fail? How can our faith fail? By the way, what does the Bible have to say about the temple today? 
We're the temple. The word says that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 say this. Or do you not know that your body, this is Paul's kind of rebuking uh, <clears throat> comeback and, and inst- instruction about uh, how we behave physically. He's talking about how we think, how we respond in the area of our sexuality. And he says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So not only do we have the ultimate access to God, but really, really, God has the ultimate access to us. God's still on His throne. For the Christ follower, that's an indwelling of His Holy Spirit guiding and moving your every uh, movement, your every motion, guiding your every thought, perhaps. I would, I would rather like to say that that's how we should be living. And I know that that's really where the battle is. The battle starts between the mind. What we think about, what we meditate on, what we ponder about, what we're fearful about, what we rejoice in, all of these things will be then expressed through our actions. So if we're living by fear, man, we're going to act fearful. We're going to be afraid of every, every single thing. Everything that's in the shadow. <clears throat> I was the elected one when we were younger to go get anything out of the car if the sun was down. My sisters were so afraid of the dark. It was actually a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) We won't go there. But like my sisters when they were younger, if we operate and if we think about everything through the lens of fear, we will act fearful. And we will be paralyzed to do what needs to be done. We'll be paralyzed physically, perhaps, because we're paralyzed mentally. We're paralyzed mentally because we're paralyzed spiritually because we haven't put God on top. We're negating exactly what David said about, I put my trust in the Lord. If that's there, what do we have to fear about? What's the problem? Is that flowing out through your life in that way where you do not live fearfully? You can check yourself. I agree with Spurgeon here. What plots can men devise which Jesus will not discover? Just think about that question. What is it out there that's going to happen that some you know, guy or some lady, some national leader, some local leader... Somebody driving down the highway with road rage that wants to pull up alongside and give you the one-fingered salute because they don't like how you're driving. What is it about any of that that God is not going to discover? What is going to pass? Oh, we missed that one. God doesn't operate in a, oh, I missed that one scenario. He doesn't miss anything. No doubt Satan has doubtless desire to have us. 
that he may sift us as wheat. But we have the greatest advocate. We have unlimited access to God. And if you're a Christ follower, he has unlimited access to you because Jesus is in the temple. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father praying for us. How can our faith then fail? His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. I thought you said God loved everybody. This is what's wrong with Christianity, right? I'm talking facetiously from a different perspective. God does love everybody. He sent his son to save the whole world. He sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but to save the world from this wickedness, from violence. Ever since the fall of man, our world has been a violent place. And it's only grown. And David's saying here, he doesn't need to take the advice of fear because God sees his situation. David can have a greater, <clears throat> can have a greater cause than just self-preservation because he knows that God is looking at him and he knows that God's taking care of him. And God doesn't test men because somehow he's unsure of the outcome. Like, man, are they going to make it? Is he going to cross the finish line? We just don't know. God doesn't operate in the unknown. Not at all. Not ever. Nor will he ever operate in an unknown understanding of who we are. So he's not testing. When testing comes, and testing will come, guaranteed, like we all know it's true. And either, uh, here's, here's how it breaks out. You were either just in a test, you were either in the middle of a test, you can kind of use test, trial, tribulation synonymously. So you either just came out of one, you know, and, and just are getting the water out of your snorkel, so to speak, and like, all right, here we are, we're going to make it. <clears throat> you're in the middle of a test, and you're thinking, man, what's going on? Uh, or, behind door number three, you're going to be in the test. So it's always present in the life of God's people. And you're not in that, and I'm not in that, because somehow God just doesn't know how I'm going to respond or know how you're going to respond. It's like, well, let's crank up something for Mark today, and let's just, (laughs) let's see how he does. You know, that's not how God operates. You know, he's not up there with the dials and buttons and, you know, high-voltage electricity. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. God doesn't test men because he somehow is unsure of the outcome. We are tested to reveal on the outside what's truly on the inside for our own growth and understanding. That's how it works. So God's going to say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to with my arm around, I'm going, to usher, I'm going to usher this young person into this trial. Because I want them to see what's really in their heart. 
And out of that, then I can help them to grow. I can help them to understand who I am. I can help them to, to, to mature in their faith and, and continue to reach towards me. I can show them their need for me. I can show them that their life's goal is to glorify me. That's the purpose of the test. So that we would see a little more of the heart of God. And we can grow and mature. Some of you guys have gone through horrendous things. For some, the last year or two has been some of the worst. And my constant advice is this. My constant advice is this. Continue to grow in your faith. So that if that person comes back around or that situation changes or the dynamic gets, is, is, is just miraculously becomes different, then you'll be mature enough then to go through the healing process. You'll be mature enough to handle it. You won't be embittered. No, no, no. You'll be tender-hearted. It's real easy through a trial then to get a, this hard, crusty shell on our hearts and to be hard-hearted because it's so painful. When, we're, when we are deceived, when we are lied to, when we are taken advantage of, when we are sinned against, let's call it what it is, it really is an opportunity for us, in a way, to discover whether we're hard-hearted and whether that shell is going to continue to grow and strengthen and strangle down on us and, and fill us full of bitterness and strife, as the Word says. Or it's an opportunity to say, I, I have to grow and mature. I have to keep leaning into Christ. And someday when reconciliation comes, someday when there's restoration of relationship, someday when, when what's been done to me that's so wrong, when the boss got it so wrong and made an example of, whatever the case is, then I'm not sitting here at the end bitter and bent out of shape. No, I'm mature enough then to walk through the rebuild. I think we fail to see that a lot of times. We're called to this sense of maturity. We're called to grow in the midst of trials. God doesn't test men. He tests the righteous, but He doesn't test us. Somehow He's unsure where you are. He's testing you so that you'll see where you are, where I'll see where I am, and we can grow in Him. And in that growth comes maturity. And in that maturity then, we're able to handle the rebuild. Because this is what I know. The rebuild is harder than the initial trial. So we've got to grow up. We have to be mature. God will take care of those that are on the other side of this equation. For those that choose not to be on God's side, for those that choose to oppose God, <clears throat> the rest of this, uh, the next verse gets pretty ugly. It's like the epic fire and brimstone, literally. Verse 6, Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. The wicked receive the just rewards for their wickedness when there's no repentance. Repentance changes everything. 
Like when, when we stay in our wickedness, when we stay in our sin, like before you're, before you're converted, I, I know this as, as sure as I know anything that I know, that if I would have stayed on the track that I was in, I would have paid consequences for the wickedness and the sin that I was living. That's just, that's just consequence. That's just the reward for the action. Right? This is why the gospel is so, so, so important. And everything revolves then around Jesus and his good news, his gospel. Because it's the only way out of that wash tub of life and sinful, wicked actions and behavior is to cling on to Christ, to trust in him, to accept who he is according to who he says he is. But for those that don't, man, it's not pretty. David says it's the uh, portion of their cup. Throughout the Bible, there's an image, kind of all through the pages of the Bible, an image of the cup that represents a container of judgment. And the greatest of these cups is mentioned in some of the very verses that we looked at just before Resurrection Sunday. Matthew 26, where Jesus agonized, he agonized over the cup that he had to bear. In fact, that was his prayer. Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, can this cup pass from me? Can I not have to take from this cup? And the cup that Jesus took was a cup of judgment. For the sins of mankind. Look it up, Matthew 26. And the difference between the cup in Psalm 11 and the cup in Matthew 26 is these unrepentant wicked will get what they deserve. The rewards for their actions. Matthew 26, rather, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath against sin. He drank that on our behalf so that we wouldn't get what we deserve. And the question on the table then is will we embrace that? Will that be our life's message for people? One of the greatest lines in yesterday's uh, <clears throat> memorial service, uh, which was a great service for Dad Radonsky, but God... God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. He drank that cup of judgment on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to embrace that we wouldn't be pinned over one side of of good and evil's equation. Rather we could be afforded an opportunity to the other side the Jesus side. Yeah, these wicked will get what they deserve. But you don't have to. They didn't have to. There's always a choice to be made. Verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. This was a comfort and encouragement, I'm sure, for David. 
When we're rebelling against the Lord, his righteousness then is no comfort. That's the difference between the wicked and the righteous. When a person is in rebellion against God's authority, God's ways, what God's trying to accomplish in their lives, there is no comfort. But David knew this, and I'm praying that we all know this as well. David knew that he was the innocent victim of persecution. What's interesting is, and he knew that the righteous Lord would take up his cause. And I want to insert this in that, because there's way too much of this mentality in our culture. There's way too much victim mentality. Though David was a victim, he did not identify as a victim. Though he had been unjustly pursued by King Saul, and then later on by his own son who was cranked up this big uprising and a coup and put David on the run later in his life. Though David was the victim of some of that, he never identified with a victim mentality. Go ahead, read it for yourself. We cannot... We cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough, we cannot embrace a victim mentality. You are not a victim. I'm not saying bad things haven't happened to some of us. I'm not saying there isn't sometimes where you haven't been a victim of something and other people's sin, bad decisions, other people's wickedness, or, or whatever type of carnage. I'm not saying that that's not true at all. And I'm not saying that's not true of me either. But there's a difference between uh, <clears throat> being in that seat and staying in that seat and seeing yourself then as a victim of everything that's out there because i'll guarantee you this if you stay in a victim mentality through the rest of your life or or you propagate that even in other people you will always 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 then live in fear you cannot the the two are diametrically opposed you cannot live fearlessly in christ as a christ follower and have a victim mentality of yourself. That I'm always on the short end of the stick. That everybody is out there to get me. It's diametrically opposed because it's opposed to your new identity in Christ that Paul talks about, we've talked about at length, and we'll continue to talk about. And my heart is broken for people that are sinned against. People that are, are neglected. People that are are uh, left out on their own, orphaned as it were. Or the sins of men neglecting their wives and their families. My heart is broken for that. And I grieve for all of us in that because we all are touched by that in some way. Like we all know that that's true. But there's a difference between that, understanding what is happening about all of that and how God then rises us out of the ashes pulls us up to Himself in relationship with Him and creates new people out of all that's broken. And to stay, in a, to, to stay all of our lives in a victim mentality is denying the power of Christ in your life. It's denying that, now God can't really fix me. Ah, God can't really, like, build a new me. That's what a victim mentality does. And in the church, that has to be clearly understood, clearly taught, and I will tell you this, with loads and loads 
of compassion. Loads of compassion. Because people are truly hurt. People have gone through difficult things. And it's real. And it's painful. And it changes your life. But it doesn't have to dominate your understanding of who you are. And it doesn't have to be the defining moment of your identity. And if it is, you're missing out on the goodness of God. That's where, that's where David, I believe, though he didn't talk about his identity as a God follower, it's all over this Psalm 11. It's all over it. And Jesus is all over it. Jesus was, was hunted like uh, David was. Uh, all kinds of bad counsel come in Jesus' way. Wow, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And people come in to try to tap it, uh, you know, trap him up in his words. And, and <clears throat> the th- the th- like we talked about, the throne of Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is all over Psalm 11. He's praying for us from that throne in verse 4. And like I mentioned, Jesus is willing willingly drank the cup of the wicked, the cup that we deserve to drink, and he did it on our behalf. He did it so that we could have relationship with him, so that we wouldn't have to stand before the heavenly judge and answer for all of our wickedness. So that one's in Christ. That one's in Christ. It's a different judgment for the believers. There's a different accounting for sure. And that's a different sermon. All in all, when David considers the greatness of God, the care of God, the vision of God, it outweighs all of the danger. For David trusting God was the safest move of all. His friends may or may not have meant well, but David would not receive their advice of fear. He would not receive their advice of identifying as a victim, of hiding out, away from coming danger. Instead, he would answer, not with fear. (laughs) David's answer was faith. I put my trust in the Lord. Let that be our message this week in our minds. When you start to face something that starts to push your fear button, stop and say, wait a minute. I'm putting my faith in the Lord. I put my trust in the Lord, just like Psalm 11. I'm putting my trust in the Lord and walk through. Now, if it's sinful, that's different. That's, that's a place to avoid. But don't ride, don't ride in style in the fearful van, scared of everything. Walk by faith. Walk by faith. Daniel, you and the worship team, come on up. We'll close with our last worship song. Get on out of here and enjoy a great Sunday afternoon.